I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, May 31st, 2011. First day back after taking a three-day weekend. Ah, it was refreshing. <laughs> And I got word from a listener. We're now uh, being broadcast on a terrestrial station in Papua New Guinea. Wow. <clears throat> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We want to compare what people are saying so that we're not deceived, so that we can help our neighbors, our friends, and family members who, well, may not be getting the whole truth, if you know what I mean. Anyway, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, even though it's the first day back after a three-day weekend, um, I, I made an executive decision, and we're going to do our light edition for the week today. And the reason why is because I want to build off of something in this lecture that uh, we're going to be playing today. We're going to be playing part two of orthodoxy, pietism, and the, uh, and what is it, the uh, the rip or the tear in the uh, the heart of Lutheran, you know, anyway. What did I, what, what do we call <laughs> What did I call it last week? Hang on a second here. I gotta go, I gotta look at my own website to figure out what we called this thing. So that uh, you know, let's see here: Orthodoxy, Pietism, and the Schism in the Lutheran Soul. And this is part two that we're gonna be playing today from uh, Doctor Daniel Van Voorhis. And uh, this is an important lecture in this little mini series that we're gonna be pl that we're playing here. And um, this kind of lays out one of the, some of the major distinctions. Uh, you know, between really good confessional Christianity versus uh, pietism, uh, subjective mysticism, romantic pietism, which is really kind of the in the beating heart of American evangelicalism. And Dr. Voorhees does a fantastic job in this lecture. It's not very long. Um, and so this is going to be a shorter edition of Fighting for the Faith, but I want to get this into the mix. And the reason being is is that there's stuff that I want to discuss and talk about this week and uh, later, you know, in, in in the weeks to come. And I want this kind of as um, a piece of furniture in our mind, if you would, uh, that uh, lays out good uh, good historical theological categories for us uh, to operate in. And so uh, we're going to be doing that today. Uh, it's the end of the month. Uh, we we made it to about 37% of our goal for the month of new subscribers. Um, that is, I, I'm very happy about that. I'm also happy uh, we've had an increase in, uh, in uh, one-time donations that uh, help us helped us meet our budget for the month of May. And I'm looking forward to the month of June. Uh, and so we're, we're setting a new goal. We're setting a new goal for... Uh, 
<laughs> we didn't even make our goal. We our goal was 350 new subscribers. We just we made it just past the 40 uh, 36 37% mark. And so we're going to set a new goal for the month of June and this is an aggressive goal. It, it's we you know, we're going to try to add 220 more new subscribers uh, so that uh, we can uh, meet our budget. And so uh, I'm we're, I'm we're in the process of frantically working towards uh um, you know, the, uh, the, getting the, the book that we're going to be putting out for the month. And, um, and so let me, let me tell you about it right now. It's, if you're familiar with the, um, the deceased, uh, Lutheran commentator, the, uh, the, uh, the author of the popular commentary, Kretzmann's popular commentary, we're going to be taking the book of Matthew from Kretzmann's popular commentary. And, uh, that's, uh, Paul E. Kretzmann is, uh, the gentleman who, uh, who did this work, and uh, it was originally published in like 1921. Uh, volume four was uh, published in 1924. Uh, so, you know, the the nice thing about this is it, here, here's how we're. You know, I, I want you to think about this. And uh, those of you who are members of the crew, you'll be getting an email so that you can download this. It's not going to be available this week. I'm hoping early next week uh, we will have this uh, finalized, and we'll be sending it out for the month of June. But uh, I used to work at Disneyland, and um, and I, when I was young, skinny, uh, in college, uh, I had a, I, I spent two years of my college years working at Disneyland, uh, as that was uh, the, one of the ways I, I would help pay my bills. And uh, I worked on the Jungle Cruise at Disneyland. And some of you are going, oh, that explains a lot. Um, <clears throat> sorry, that's a different story. But yeah, it probably does. But uh, one of the things, uh, you know, I, I w was trained in the Disney way of doing things. And uh, one of the things I was really impressed with, and, and that is, is that uh, there's, a, there's a division of Disney that a lot of people don't know about. And that is, is uh, they have a VIP tour uh, group that, you know, if you want a VIP tour of Disneyland, uh, you can, you, they have several different packages that you can, uh, that you can purchase there in the Magic Kingdom. And I, this is not a commercial for them, but uh, one of the the really nice things about it is is that when you if you, when you take a VIP tour of Disneyland, uh, you see things and are and things are pointed out to you that you wouldn't normally as just a you know a guest in the park you you may not notice these things and so there's some of the things that are kind of deconstructed and stuff that uh, you know anyway it's, it's a fantastic way to experience. Uh, Disneyland or uh, Walt Disney World at uh, the Magic Kingdom, they also offer the same thing. Um, if you've never done it, maybe worth the time. But here's the here's the idea: is is that uh, Paul Kretzmann's uh, commentary on the Book of Matthew? Um, when you receive this as a crew member, and this is only this is for crew members only for the month of June. There is no other way to get this um, except for you know unless you know you you want to go and purchase you know Kretzmann's popular commentary, but um, the uh, the the think of this as a VIP tour of, of the Gospel of Matthew, and it's it's just fantastic. It's written on at a lay level, and it's also written at a level that you know if if uh, you know, even a theologian, somebody who's trained in theology, could really truly appreciate it. And then the wonderful thing about Kretzmann is is that um, he's in his grave. He he is now in glory. Uh, he he is he is. In the kingdom, he is in the heavenly kingdom and has, and has met Christ face to face already. And so he is not tainted by post-modernity at all. And, uh, and so if you know, the, uh, one of the reasons why I like getting older books into your hands is so that you can read them and see how the church has handled things in the past, how they've, you know, how God's word has been interpreted and handled in the past, because the new stuff that's coming down the pike is just silly. It's, it's banal. It's, it's, in many times it's just wrong. And so, uh, think the, the way to think about this, uh, this, this, uh, the month of June's, uh, offering for our crew members is, uh, it is a VIP tour of the Gospel of Matthew, and you will see things that you have never seen before. You will have things pointed out to you in a way that you're going to go, oh, wow, that's what that means. And it's just, it's fantastic 
good devotional reading, and uh, and and I know that you're gonna you're gonna be edified by it, and your understanding of the Gospel of Matthew is gonna grow by leaps and bounds. It's it's just a fantastic resource, and uh, one that I know that you, that you all are going to truly truly uh, cherish. So you know we're gonna be uh, that's what we're gonna be doing for the month of June. Uh, you will not be getting the uh, crew members. You will not be getting the email for this until sometime next week because we're not quite done with the edits uh, on on the text for this. So just want to let you all know that. Anyway, so <laughs> I'm like if my brain's in four different places all at the same time. So, all right, so we're gonna dive into the program proper, and uh, here is uh, Dr. Daniel uh, Daniel Van Voorhis and his uh, his uh, second uh, part of his uh, series of lectures on Orthodoxy, Pietism, and the Schism in the Lutheran Soul. Here we go. All right, welcome. Uh, we'll go ahead and get started now. The timing is always a little bit uh, interesting, a little bit funny, uh, but we'll go with what we have. Uh, for those of you that, that don't know, if you haven't received the uh, mailing in your mailbox, uh, it will give you the schedule of, of all the talks this second hour uh, over the summer. Uh, a number of talks uh, from Dr. Francisco, myself, other professors uh, from Concordia University, Irvine, as well. Um, the, the, na- the, the very first talk that I gave uh, was a few weeks ago on the beginning, on the birth of pietism. Um, and so I'll, I'll recap just a little bit today, uh, but if you go online to faithcapo.com, uh, all of these are, uh, you can see the videos and you can uh, see them in order. So today is part two uh, of the history of Lutheran pietism. Uh, the talk is entitled, From Wittenberg to Halle, The Rise of Pietism in the 18th Century. Well, whoever made the schedule for these second hour classes uh, didn't do me any favors. You get a few weeks from Dr. Francisco on Islam. That's exciting stuff. Dr. Francisco is knowledgeable, winsome, handsome, and it's Islam. How timely and intriguing. No pietists were ever involved in a shootout with Navy SEALs and a compound outside of Islam about <laughs> pietists. They're just, they're just buzzkills. Maybe they just give you the evil eye when you reach for another beer. But there is a method to how we're going to go about these second-hour classes. Not only do we want to be continually looking at the biblical and doctrinal foundations of our Lutheran theology, but this summer we will be looking at not only the obvious external and explicit threats to Christianity, but we must also look at other movements, much more subtle and coming from within a church, as opposed to the external and explicit, these are internal and sometimes implicit. And so while pietism may seem rather plain, 17th and 18th century pastors in dark robes with dour faces, their theological innovations and deviations from classical confessional Lutheranism have had serious ramifications for our church corporately, as well as for individuals within the church, both then and now. Last time I taught, I spoke of this as a schism in the Lutheran soul. It was a few weeks ago, so let me quickly recap. We looked at the seemingly grave implications of the year 1546, the year of Luther's death, and the Lutherans' defeat by imperial troops at the Battle of Muehlberg. I mentioned briefly the stunning turnabout in 1555 when Lutheranism was afforded legal status within the empire by the Peace of Augsburg, only to be followed by a number of doctrinal battles within the Lutheran Church, which would fortuitously lead to the codification of Lutheran orthodoxy in the Book of Concord, formally adopted in 1580. Yet then, a small devotional book written by an unknown Lutheran pastor, True Christianity by Johann Arndt, would set in motion a theological revolution within the church that came to fruition with Philip Jacob Spainer and his Pia Desideria, or Pious Desires, and thus the official beginning of a movement in the late 17th century, Lutheran pietism, that would wage a battle for the hearts and minds of Lutherans for the next centuries, and perhaps be the greatest internal challenge to the Lutheran church, as well as a forerunner to modern theological developments in the church today. And we'll see that over the summer when we look at German Lutheran pietism and then later on uh, American evangelicalism. We'll see how the roots of this really inform 
uh, what we see in the church today. Last time, quickly, I discussed what I, I think is an important distinction between piety and pietism, something very important to keep in mind. The former, piety, is part and parcel of our historic Christian faith, a humble reverence for God as he has reconciled us to himself through Christ despite ourselves. It is the latter, the pietism, that has a particular historical context and a theological disposition. Spainer laid the foundation for this movement, and I broke it for you last time into four parts. One, the distinction between the head and the heart. This distinction we will see later becomes a, a quite a large chasm, but at its core it includes a subtle but extremely significant reversal of the emphasis on Christus pro nobis versus Christus in nobis. That is Christ for us versus Christ in us. While Christ is certainly working for us, that is outside of ourselves, and he is working in us. St. Paul tells us that it is in fact not we that live, but Christ living in us. The emphasis in Lutheranism had been placed on Christ for us, his death for our sake. In a historical time and place, having done the good works, we could not, imputing his righteousness and taking away our sins, thereby proclaiming us justified, despite our constant state of sin and rebellion. That is, the focus had been on Christus pro nobis, Christ for us. With pietism, we see the shift to Christus in nobis, Christ in us. The second component was the ecclesiola and ecclesia, that is, the church within the church, a kind of small group. This is not inherently bad, but these conventicles would become perhaps the most visible distinguishing marks of pietism. And as we will see, they would lead to schism. They would lead to a rejection of the sacraments. And it was the nature of these groups to see themselves as a church within a church, a place for the true believers within a corrupted church. And it was the goal of these conventicles, and this is self-proclaimed by Spener and his followers, that they were to be a place to measure spiritual growth towards Volkommenheit, type of perfection. And while Spener would tiptoe around this, this perfection, as we'll see, would become a, a staple of, of later pietist groups. The idea, quickly, of, of Christian perfection is a little ambiguous. Uh, most of them would never proclaim to achieve true perfection. Rather, it was in making a distinction between, uh, and Spainer would do this, Franca would, uh, deliberate and accidental sins. They could achieve a state wherein they could stop sinning on purpose. Those other things, they were mistakes. You guys are laughing. I'm just, this is what they're writing. Of course, as I mentioned before, uh, the clearest explanation of this was put forth by an, an English devotee of Spainer, John Wesley, who would later come to America where he would find uh, quite an interested audience. Thirdly, quickly, pietism was post-millennial. They saw the end times coming with the gradual amelioration of social ills and the spread of their true Christianity. It was a utopian triumphalism. The city of God taking over the city of man, the right-hand kingdom swallowing the left, and this by human effort. You want to make a bookmark on this point for later discussion. Eschatology is more important than you think. If we were to identify various groups in the history of the Christian church as deviating from the historic faith, you will almost certainly find a peculiar eschatology somewhere near the top of their statement of faith. We will spend a decent amount, looking, uh, decent amount of time looking at this later in the summer when we examine American evangelicalism. Uh, and to use the, the technical terminology, it's, uh, it's wacky. It's, uh, it's, it's crazy stuff, and it's kind of fun to look at. Uh, but it's very important. It's very important. Lastly, pietism claimed that Luther's Reformation was incomplete something that will be echoed by other uh, Reformation groups, the Zwinglians and the, the Calvinists. Now, while Spener respected Luther, he himself, Spener, claimed that Luther lived in a time where the focus on the external nature of the gospel was good enough. But Spener complained that Luther did not have to deal with the stubborn and coarse people 
that he himself had to deal with. And thus, Spener needed to go beyond the reforms of Luther. To be fair, there is an aspect to theology, at least applied theology, that is dependent on context and situation. But Spener, and certainly Franke, who we'll meet today, and those coming up, argue that the foundational doctrines of the Lutheran church were flawed. And if not amended and expanded, it would lead Christians into false security. It is all four of these points taken together that compromise pietism. Speaking from a historical and descriptive perspective, this represents a departure from Lutheran orthodoxy, not only as expressed in the 16th century, but also as orthodoxy was defended throughout the ensuing centuries. From a theological and personal perspective, this is a dangerous departure, as it places the emphasis on the individual's own experience. It finds certainty in all the wrong places, Furthermore, it avoids a robust robust dialogue concerning the truth of objective theological propositions and will, as it ignores classic Christianity and its rational defense, slip into various heresies from the early church. Now, we need to be sober and nuanced. Knee-jerk reactions lead to historical inaccuracies and can lead some to back themselves into corners whereby they end up fighting pietism, but in the meantime reject any doctrine of good works and sense of Christocentric piety. But as we move along from Arndt to Spener and today into Franca, we're we're going to see that there, there is quite a distinction and a dangerous distinction for the church and a significant distinction from Lutheran orthodoxy that we need to be uh, looking out for. And so today we're talking about Halle pietism in the 18th century through the primary associative Spener, that is August Hermann Franke. Halle in Saxony, uh, southwest of Berlin, is today a city in ruins. In 2004, Time magazine called the once flourishing city the, quote, worst place in Germany. While today you would not want to walk around after dark, During the day, you would find the remnants of schools, orphanages, and churches built during the heady and optimistic age of pietism in the 18th century. And while some of these buildings can still give us a glimpse into the not altogether ill-conceived social reform of the pietists, the city itself is a picture of a clash between the dreams of a triumphant post-millennial and utopian pietism and the brutal realities of a broken and sinful world. Now, the father of this city on a hill was the protege of Spener, August Hermann Franke, lived from 1663 to 1727. If Spener was the architect that laid the theological foundation of pietism, Franke was the builder. He set in motion the social and theological movement and growth of this peculiar church and, and the state institution institutions that marked the high point of 18th century Lutheran pietism. It's somewhat tangential, uh, but but interesting. Uh, Various German princes, dukes, and magistrates in the 18th century uh, had very close relations with the pietists. Uh, A number of them actually converted uh, either from Roman Catholicism or from Calvinism to pietism uh, themselves. Uh, Pietism for these state leaders was practical. It wasn't theologically fussy. It was a self-proclaimed, simplified, and practical theology that was quite attractive to the state. It could be used for social programs, etc. This is neither affirming nor damning, uh, but a group that pushed aside a doctrine of two kingdoms and would bury theological convictions at times for the state should at least raise some eyebrows and lead us all to think about the nature of the church in the world. I do believe there's a way in which Lutheran orthodoxy can reclaim some of which was taken by the pietists and other theologically compromising groups. Here is a shameless plug for Dr. Simonetto's League of Faithful Masks at faithfulmasks.org. I I think when it comes to the two kingdoms and what orthodox Lutheranism uh, and and how we can understand this, that's a, that's a, a good way to go. However, for today... We can understand Halle pietism through Franca with three major points. 
All three which will tie back into the overarching theme of certainty. Point number one is Franca's new anfectung, his new stress and trouble. Number two, a retreat from the enlightenment. And three, the abandonment of things adiaphora. Number one, anfectung, or a kind of temptation and suffering, marked the beginning of Luther's theological awakening and personal rediscovery of the gospel. Luther's anfectung revolved around certainty. How could he know that a righteous God would pardon a poor, miserable sinner? And the answer came from St. Paul, that the righteous shall live by faith, that God objectively declares sinners saints on account of Christ's death alone. It was an answer rooted in objectivity and something outside of himself. Franca had a similar anfectung, also related to certainty. How could he know that he was truly saved? And furthermore, for Franca, that the Bible could be trusted as being trustworthy. The answer for Franca was rooted in experience, primarily his own conversion experience. He had experiential certainty. And from that point on, he claimed that his Christianity endured. Now, this epistemology, way of knowing, based on the certainty of his experience, would have other effects. Uh, one that I will mention only in passing is the nature of Scripture itself. Uh, and this is a, a, a large debate that takes place in the 18th uh, and 19th century in Germany and has uh, grave implications. Rather than see the Bible as a trustworthy text, wherein the text said what it meant and meant what it said, the understanding and interpretation of Scripture to Franca and other pietists, this understanding was locked. The Bible was only available to the reborn. This is a, a very delicate point and one that can lead to misunderstanding. Basically, the question is, can the Scriptures have a literal sense? That is, as a document recording historical events and theological propositions. The pietists did damage with a new, but in some ways old concept of a literal, spiritual, and mystical meaning of each passage. The similarities to postmodernism and literary criticism will have to be put aside for the time being, but the idea that the key to understanding a text has to do with you and the state that you are in, the text and nothing else, has ruined hundreds of theology history and literature departments at universities across America. The main point should be reiterated. Any certainty came from experience. And on this, Franco would one-up Spainer. While Spainer did hold to the confidence that one's baptism could give them a degree of certainty, Franca insisted that all believers must be able to date their own conversion experience. He required this of his students. He required this of those in his uh, conventicles, in his small groups. In fact, one of the enduring legacies of this in Germany was a mandate uh, lasting all the way into the 20th century from the ministerium at Brandenburg, Prussia, uh, that has been in place since 1729, that any candidate for ministry in the Lutheran church must give an account of his own conversion experience for ordination. There's implications for this in the Lutheran Church today. I was recently told a story of an applicant who sought a teaching job at an LCMS high school. One of the questions uh, asked of the applicant was, well, when did they have their conversion experience? I hope that the answer, when I was about one month, about nine pounds, and a pastor poured water on my head, would suffice. I doubt it. Another question asked of the applicant was regarding their faith walk. I won't go there, uh, but it does tie into this next section. One of the places where we can locate a distinct change in emphasis and ethos in Franca and the Holopietists was their interpretation of Romans 7, particularly verse 19, where St. Paul writes, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Franca interpreted this as Paul writing of his condition before his conversion. His quest for certainty based on experience perhaps necessitated this. 
For after all, if we find ourselves knowing what to do and not doing it, how can we ever be certain that we are saved? After all, if you know what is wrong and you do it, you can't. I'll let the exegetes deal with this text, but from a historical perspective, this interpretation, this reinterpretation of Romans 7 illuminates a shift in emphasis and a certainty, once again, based on the epistemology of personal experience. As for the pietists' retreat from the Enlightenment, I'll have to paint in broad strokes here, but hopefully it will help us understand the historical context and impetus for Franca and pietism in the 18th century. Now, unfortunately, Christians have long since blamed the Enlightenment for most everything that went wrong in the church since the 18th century. I'm sure that many Enlightenment figures watching from heaven, and there are some in heaven, uh, were quite pleased to see postmodernism replace it as the ill-defined boogeyman that is supposedly the cause of all the church's problems today. Nevertheless, correctly understood, broadly understood, the Enlightenment was really nothing other than an age when men talked a great deal about reason and hoped that its conscious use would bring about some kind of improvement in human affairs, primarily social, economic, and political. In this sense, follow me for one second, it has a parallel with the Renaissance, a movement concurrent to the Reformation, that while at times was antagonistic to historic Christianity, did suggest ways of thinking about the world and producing technologies that assisted the church and most certainly brought about a marked improvement in human affairs. Nevertheless, the pietists, and unfortunately many other Lutherans and Christians, painted the Enlightenment as a time of unbridled rationalism that would overturn the church and convert the world to a godless paganism at worst and a muddled deism at best. How did Franca and others respond to this? Well, the way in which many of my students respond to difficult questions about the nature of reality, the quest for objective truth. They turn to the unverifiable. You, Dr. Van Voris, can use your arguments and evidence all you want. And rather than do the hard work of getting into the real world, the archives, the laboratories, etc., they will respond with subjective and personal statements that avoid the possibility of anything being false, and thus by extension of anything being true as well. The pietists led the charge here towards unverifiability. Ironically, their university, the University at Halle, was no slouch academically. And the pietists in the 18th century, the early pietists, were actually, uh, most of them trained uh, in, in biblical languages and dogmatics by Orthodox Lutherans at the universities of Wittenberg and, and Jena, they knew what orthodoxy was, and they rejected it. This reaction to Lutheran orthodoxy and the Enlightenment, the retreat into the inner sanctum of the unverifiable and emotional claims, would not only leave many Christians with the understanding that personal experience accompanied with an observable growth in good works was the key to certainty. However, in all of this, it would also turn many off who saw the irrationality of it all and lead them to abandon the historic Christian faith. The third and final point, the abandonment of Adiaphora. And this ties in to the first two points and the overall theme of certainty. How do you know you are truly saved? How do you know what you believe is true? Now, this last point regarding Adiaphora might hit a little closer to home. After all, it was more practical. It involved what Franca and others would refer to as their repentance struggle. Repent they'd use the same word that Luther would use here with repentance, whether it be anfectung or buskampf, these, these words about struggle uh, and repentance. Um, and while that's certainly present in Luther, the answer for Luther and the Orthodox Lutherans always had to do with an objective, uh, external uh, answer. Uh, whereas this, this lifelong existential struggle for the pietists uh, would, would be quite a struggle because the answer would be, look back in on yourself. 
and see how you've moved on, uh, see how you've, you've gained some level of certainty. We see here a particularly defined distinction, one that has uh, antecedent but is made explicit in pietism in Franca, the distinction between flesh and spirit. There's a long history here. It's not uncommon to find in some radical groups a chasm between the two, a rejection of anything of the flesh. That's usually going to refer to anything physical, and the link to mysticism and Gnosticism can be made. And as we look at radical pietism next week, and other Reformation groups and evangelical groups in America, we will certainly have to expand on this. Nevertheless, if the spiritual is internal, experiential, it is good. And its opposite, the fleshly, the external, is dicey at best and sinful at worst. Now, Hollow was certainly a city concerned with external actions. And here we don't want to condemn the whole thing. The social work they did was quite remarkable and to be commended. In rejecting their theological foundations and motivations for these good works, we should not reject the ideas uh, that they had, some of the ideas, uh, about doing good in society. But as holopietism saw what you did as indicative of the state of your soul, certain activities would have to come under scrutiny. And here's where the doctrine of adiaphora, that is, things indifferent, disappeared. If these pietist theologians were unwilling to write theological disputations, as they found them distasteful, they had no problem writing tracts on dancing, smoking, amusements, the theater. This was, after all, practical. For them, dogmatic theology and disputation was useless at best, but probably harmful. They were dealing with clear instructions on what to do and how you yourself can know the state that you are in based on personal and spiritual evaluation. Those things that had been left alone as adiaphora, as indifferent to the faith, were now part and parcel of the faith. This is all very cursory and part of a, a larger set of talks, but Franca himself understood in his context, in Halle, as a protege of Spener, struggling with the certainty of salvation, developing an epistemology of experience and a concrete, although completely subjective, plan for personal development that forbade certain activities marks the practical application of those developments we examined last time and that I recapped in the beginning of today's class. Seemingly subtle shifts, an emphasis here instead of there, a seemingly academic question about verifiability and assurance, and then a suggestion that orthodoxy maybe just wasn't enough would lead to Franca's wholly new theological orientation. Unfortunately, this is in many ways just the beginning of the story. Next week, as we move into radical pietism in Germany and America uh, later in the summer, we will see this history repeating itself. Thank you very much. Okay, we are going to pause the lecture right there, and we're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard this edition, any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, would love to get your feedback. You can email me. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash piratechristian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. The management 
of Monty Python's Flying Circus Church would like to apologize to all of our listeners. Normally, we do parody here at Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, due to unforeseen circumstances and the current miserable state of the church, uh, we can no longer parody the church because the church just parodies itself. For proof of this particular concept, uh, we now present to you um, the uh, Holy Ghost Okie Pokey. I'll tell you, three weeks ago, we did a Friday Night School of the Spirit, and we saw 12 people heal the Word of Knowledge, and 40 healed during the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. Let's just go ahead and do that and see what the Lord does. You guys okay to do a little Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey? Can you lead it? All right, Brian's going to lead us in the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. You can Put your right hand in, put your right hand out. You put your right hand in, you put your right hand out. You put your right hand in, you dig your right hand out. You put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand out. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand out. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand out. Put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. Put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. with the arms uh, nothing nothing real effect but then as soon as i just start we started doing the whole we'll put your left foot in your right foot in both of my knees you know one at a time i could just feel all of a sudden it's like there was no pain i said you said start checking yourself i was just squat that's awesome thank you lord for new knees in jesus name come on come on um i've had back problems most of my life and a couple of we- about a week ago my back had gone out and it was somewhat better but it was still sore uh, up until today, and when we did that hokey pokey, and she came up and testified, all the pain went. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. Shake it, shake it, shake it all about. You put your whole head in, you take your whole head out. You put your whole head in, take your whole head out. You put your whole head in, take your whole head Put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about, and you shake it, 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 and you shake it. more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money 
on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Right, we are back. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. Especially if you're getting subjective mystic pietism and not Christ and Him crucified for your sins. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio, and we truly do depend upon you, our listeners, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. We are we are just finishing up. Well, we, did, we, we didn't make our goal for the month of May, so we're setting a new goal for the month of June. We need to add 220 more uh, subscribers, uh, crew members, uh, to our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Uh, and uh, joining our crew, well, they, what that does is it ensures that we make our budget. That's kind of the important thing. We need to make budget every month so that we can continue to uh, bring Fighting for the Faith to you. And during the month of June, when you, uh, when you uh, are a member of our crew, you will be getting an email next week uh, or, or when you join uh, that will uh, show you how you can download a copy of our ebook for this month, uh, that's Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, a VIP walkthrough, uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Fantastic stuff, and uh, yeah, and, and that's our way of saying thank you for those of you who are crew members and who support Fighting for the Faith and uh, Pirate Christian Radio. Now, uh, the way you join our crew, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, click on the Join Our Crew button, or if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you can click on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Just a reminder, crew members, it's $6.95 every month. It's not a lot of money. And uh, and as our way of saying thank you, you get access to uh, our ebooks as we make them available. So there you have it. All right, let's dive back into our uh, lecture here from Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis on uh, orthodoxy, pietism, and the schism in the Lutheran uh, soul. Here we go. Uh, so I, I purposely sort of gave you the outline so we have some time for uh, questions and answers. If you'd wait for Jim Lowe to uh, bring you the, the microphone, if you have any questions, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, I certainly know that pietism snuck into America with the LCMS. But, <laughs> uh, yes. But how pervasive was it? How pervasive was pietism in the 18th century, and did, how, how did it move into the 19th? Yeah, well, we'll be looking that, at that next week, uh, primarily um, through Halle. Um, one of the things that they did, and, and this is one of the things you have to wrestle with historically, is that they did these things uh, in terms of orphanages and schools and hospitals that, that are quite commendable. And the other thing they did, which was, well, commendable, but... An answer to your question is they were very active in missionary work. It's Halle is the center of, of German missionary work um, it, it's for, for the pietist movement. Uh, and, and the Lutherans, the Orthodox Lutherans themselves, uh, were perhaps not as vigilant in this. And so what happens with German, piet, German Lutheran pietism is that um, they're, they're trained at the University of Halle under Franke, uh, Gottfried Arnold and others, and then they're sent out. They're sent out to Russia, to Sweden, and then uh, next week we'll be looking at uh, a, a character named Count von Zinzendorf. Uh, uh, von Zinzendorf, not just fun to say, uh, but he, he studied under Franke and then would come to the New World. He had a connection with Wesley, and there's the connection. Uh, the, the LCMS connection, there certainly is one, um, and, and we, we can talk just a little about that. Uh, the history of the LCMS is, um, you know, kind of boring. Uh, but there, there, is, there is a connection here um, with Zinzendorf, especially. We'll be getting into that next week. 
Our mound. Uh, yeah, doctor, uh, question just to confirm. You'd say that pietism is an offshoot of Orthodox Lutheranism then. Uh, okay, is it, if pietism is an offshoot of Orthodox Lutheranism. Yeah, I, I don't, the word to use there, are you, you're asking, well, here's what we know. We know that those pietists, from, from the sort of proto-pietist, if you want to call Arndt that, not super happy with that term, but if we look at Arndt, but then especially Spanner, Franca, Arnold, they, they all studied in, under Lutheran orthodoxy, uh, the, under, under, at, at <clears throat> sorry, universities uh, that, that taught orthodox Lutheranism. And so it is an offshoot insofar as this is how they were all trained. And then they looked at it and said, this isn't enough. Uh, that, and, uh, as Spainer himself says, that was all nice and well in the 16th century when, you know, you just needed to tell people they were forgiven and then they'd be just fine. Historically, this is very dodgy, even for Spainer living much closer to the 16th century than, than we are. Uh, the 16th century was full of rowdies uh, and peasants and... Uh, uh, rowdy peasants, I should say, some were fine, um, that, um, <clears throat> that Luther had to deal with um, and, and orthodoxy had to deal with. Um, nevertheless, Spainer said that was good, and the orthodox, or the pietists said that was good then, but today the people are particularly bad. They're smoking and they're going to the theater and the like, and so now we need to introduce these new things. It, it, so it is an offshoot because that's where they came from, uh, but it is certainly um, antithetical and, and has, has its problems. Are there offshoots of Lutheran pietism in churches extant that don't have Lutheran in their name? And yeah, if so, yeah. if so, what be... what are their names? <laughs> what are their names? Um, okay, this is something we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks. This is there is a sort of slow burn to what I'm doing. Uh, I'm not just coming in and throwing everything out on the table. Um, this is what we're doing. I mean, we're going to be looking at how uh, Lutheran pietism has affected the Lutheran Church and American Christianity. But there's something about Lutheran pietism, the quest for certainty, all of these aspects, these particular things we find in Lutheran pietism that affect the Lutheran church that we can find throughout the history of the church. Uh, Luther himself and others have said we have a natural inclination towards looking in on ourselves, a natural inclination towards mysticism. And so when we find certain groups, uh, and we will certainly in America, um, we, we don't necessarily, we can't historically tie them directly to Lutheran pietism. We can just tie them to this overall phenomenon of, of people's love of navel-gazing uh, and mysticism. Uh, it, it's just, just, I'm just looking at, at the history. Um, there are particular groups, though, and uh, the, um, there were, the Swedes have a very interesting history of, of being Lutheran. At least they were told they were going to be Lutheran, and so they said, yes, yes, sir, uh, to the king. Um, but they've, this is where Arndt and Spainer and the pietists, just, just uh, their thought uh, spread like wildfire. And so they're the ones that, that coming to America um, do have that connection to Lutheranism, especially Lutheran pietism, uh, and those, to, to name the church, those are the EV free churches. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, the Scandinavian countries, uh, they, were, they were sort of, the, the, it was, it was a, a nature of a reformation from above. That is, the kings, the princes, the magistrates, they liked the reformation. and those, the, So they just said, everyone, you're what I am. And they said, all right, what does that mean? I don't know. Be nice. Okay. <laughs> Who tells us how to be nice? Well, Schmanner, the pietist. Uh, that, yeah, that's, that's, that's your folk, Rod. Always submitting. And if you know anything about Rod, he's just always saying yes. Always Yes, yes. yes. I, I basically have more of a comment. Sure. Um, it's easier for me to answer. I, I, <laughs> uh, I'm brand new to Lutheranism. Uh, coming out of, um, I guess, evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. um, I, I will say saved in uh, Chuck Smith Jr.'s church. Okay. So to be here amongst, I'm assuming most people here have been Lutherans for many years, and to hear you speaking, I can relate. I don't know if others are relating to it's, what you're saying. You know what? I, I'm, I'm in a similar position. I, I did not grow up in the church uh, at all. Uh, I, I came, uh, uh, I was baptized when I was 19 years old, uh, and I was, I was fascinated with Christian radio. Uh, I thought, what on earth is this? Uh, what is Christianity and is 107 point something? Uh, is, that, is that what it is? Um, 
And then, then I found this tradition, and I thought, well, wait a second. Hey, Christians, uh, why aren't more people paying attention to this? Um, this is very different. So I, I'm in a, a similar position, and so sometimes when you're, you're speaking uh, uh, amongst Lutherans, they just sort of assume, oh, well, of course, we've been going through the catechism. But that, yeah, and that's why it, it, what Dr. Francisco is doing and will be doing, uh, and, and others, when we look at external threats, we have to look at the external threats to Christianity. But just as significant uh, is, are these internal, these implicit threats that creep in. And, and I guess that's my specialty. It's not as, not as sexy as Dr. Francisco. <laughs> but in general, who's as, what's as sexy as Dr. Francisco? Yes. Uh, two questions. Um, what was the orthodox response at this point? In other words, what, what, I'm guessing there was some kind of battle. And, and how, what does that battle look like? The, the battle looks like playing... Um, 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 uh, what's the analogy? Um, it, it's it's like um, I mean they're, 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 they had a response, but it, it wasn't a battle. It was it was um, it was oh, there's an analogy for this. Hold on, wait a second. It comes from my youth. It has to do with a bouncy ball that you hit. Someone help me here, Dan. No, handball. Playing handball with the drapes. That's what it was like. Handball with the drapes. So the Lutheran, the Orthodox, and, and uh, Robert Preuss and his theology of Lutheran Orthodoxy has a, um, uh, a, just a, a great overview of how they responded, how the, the Orthodox universities responded, condemned uh, Spainer holopietism in the 18th century. Um, he does a, a good job of doing this. However, what did the, the holopietists, how did they respond? They didn't. So it was, it was, here's a volley, all right, pietists, will you, will you uh, respond to this? And they said, no, that dis- that's disputational. That will only lead the flock astray. Instead, we need to write practical pamphlets. Also, having come out of pietism <laughs> yeah. and being new to Lutheranism, I also wanted to make a comment, maybe taking hers a little bit further, that having trying to live under the pietistic point of view and realizing at a certain point, even before I became a Lutheran, this isn't working. I am not getting any better. And but I didn't know what to do. I think the Lord's answer was to, you know, bring us into this miraculous miraculously uh, yeah. do that for us. But the answer to the Pietists, from my own experience, if that's not ironic, no, um, is that it has to be outside of yourself. Yeah, yeah, and that's to that, know that, for certain that, that you uh, are saved. Um, yeah, Christ outside of us. That's what the Orthodox would keep keep pushing. Uh, I can't do the psychology here. I'm not a psychologist, but there are those people that will deal with that particular infectum, right? There are those people that, if pushed, will either despair. And this is where you listen to Dr. Rosenblatt stuff. Where people will despair and run away. However. I have met far too many people in my, my relatively brief time in the church, uh, broad church, that are more than happy uh, to show you their journal of what they've been doing and how they've been doing it. And, it, and so for, for some of us, perhaps in this room, um, who have chosen a church that, 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 uh, that holds faithfully to the tradition of Lutheran orthodoxy, we don't understand how anybody... Are you, what? You, you can't. You, if you measured yourself against the law, that, that's, that's, that's a terrible thing to do. Oh, there are people that like to do it. There, there sure are. And we'll be looking at that, uh, especially when we get into it. The American church, um, that's, that's later this summer. Yes. It's not very profound, but it's kind yeah, of a... Usually, usually they aren't. Yeah, what do you got? Uh, in, the, in the 17th and 18th centuries that you're talking about, did they look at the society that was kind of starting into the modernity uh, and as evidence that pietism was working? Oh, absolutely. That's why, and that's why I made that mention, that, that it was the kings and the dukes and the princes, the magistrates that said, okay, we want a church in our area. Which one are we going to look for? The one that is, uh, in the words of one 20th century commentator commenting on Orthodox Lutheranism, called us remarkably unremarkable. But the pietists, and they did do, I mean, the orphanages, the hospitals, these are good things. And that's why I said, I, I think there's a way to reclaim a, an orthodox position that also has a, a sort of robust involvement in the other kingdom. www.faithfulmasks.com.
org uh, that, that deals with these questions. Um, but, but yes, that, that was visible, right? We love the visible. We love to see things, and look at that. Look at the streets. They're so clean in Hala. And that's the irony. Hala was beautiful. Hala was or- ornate. It, it, was, it was Baroque. Um, and, and every uh, description of it was that this was, this was God. This was the city on a hill, right? This is God's city. Uh, and that's why it's so shocking to see it today because it is a wasteland. Now, the problem there is communism. That's another story. Um, but it, just, the, just the visible picture of, of this once flourishing city that, that is now just the, the picture of utopian, post-millennial, pietist dreams dashed. All right, well, uh, next week... Uh, we'll be going further and further off the track. Um, I'll, I'll uh, perhaps bring in a handout to help us uh, follow what's going on. Uh, thank you very much, and uh, we'll see you next week. Great lecture, good questions. Would love to get your feedback. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. You know the drill. Visit our website. Join our crew or make a one-time contribution by clicking on the Donate button. Uh, Crew members uh, will be getting access to our uh, ebook for the month of June, which will be uh, the popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Paul Kretzman. You don't want to miss that. So, all right, so what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback if you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. It's Jesus for you. Amen. Thank you.